Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show with the long-awaited Citizens' Assembly on Drug Use in Ireland looking set to take place in the coming months. We ask, is our current system failing the most vulnerable? And is it time we looked at reform? Applause of support from Minister Pascal Donoghue at tonight's Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting as Taoiseach Leo Varadkar pledges his full support. It's a bumpy beginning to the new Dáil term. And later, as the Cleary's clock is revamped and revealed, will the reopening of this iconic building help revive our capital's main artery? Join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. tonight a citizens assembly is being promised in the next few months which will look at drug use in Ireland and whether it is time that we overhauled our laws. Are we right to use the criminal justice system as a means of tackling drug use or is it time that we decriminalised? Is a health-based approach the right way to go and what services should we provide to help those who need it most? Well here to discuss all this and more is Fianna Fáil TD Paul McAuliffe. Independent Senator Lynn Ruan, TD for Aintu, Padre Chobin, criminologist Trina O'Connor, and executive editor for the Daily Mail group, John Lee. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. And tonight we want to tell you about our nightly live interactive poll, which allows you to have your say. Should the possession of drugs for personal use be decriminalised? You can vote online on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash vote or follow the QR code on screen, and we will bring you those poll results later on in the programme. Um, to come to you first on this, and you're all very welcome along to the programme, Lynn Ruan, it's something that you have advocated around for many years, around drug policy in this country. Yes. And you strongly believe there is a case for change. What specifically needs to change? What is it about our laws that you believe are so outdated and not in keeping with the times? Well, I think even when the law was brought in in the 70s, it also wasn't in keeping with the times. There wasn't a huge amount of drug use, of uh, prevalence of drug use in the country at the time. And we were actually um, implementing a UN treaty. So we were kind of putting ourselves in line with UN obligations. And that's where the law actually originally came from. So under that law of criminalisation for the last 40 years, we've seen the use of drugs increase. We've seen the devastation of addiction, especially in working class communities, cause a huge amount of um, hardship in communities for families. We've seen a huge amount of young men, especially end up in the prison system due to, you know, possession. Mm. And it's kind of had this um, far reaching effect across Irish society. And that's under criminalisation. You know, so criminalisation has never worked. And of course, people can be a little bit afraid or a little bit worried because maybe they've been terribly impacted by drugs in their life. But 
your family member, your friend, your son, your daughter, um, they don't address their drug use in, in the court system. They don't address their drug use in the prison system. A lot of young men, um, and I say young men because it is a lot of young men in, in many cases that end up in the prison system, um, often increase or change the type of drug they use while in prison. So they may have recreationally been using drugs when they enter into the prison system. You can still access uh, drugs within the prison system. So there's no part of the criminal justice system that actually supports a person to, um, you know, move out of addiction. And then if not everything, not everyone has an addiction. So there's a huge population in Ireland where there's drug use and they recreationally use drugs, they go to work, they get on about their lives, nobody will ever know. But usually the people who are most affected by the laws are those who are most policed in working class communities. So you have this one law that is supposed to apply to everybody, but you're very unlikely to be stopped and searched if you're from a more affluent area. There's not a beat on the street, there's not police around. So you could have, you know, a 50 bag of weed in your pocket and you could be a young man or a young woman or whoever, whatever age you are, in your own community in a more affluent area and you're unlikely to ever have to um, see any consequence for that legally you in believe, comparison to you, other communities. You believe it's punishment for poverty? <clears throat> well, it is. I mean, I think it's the criminalisation of poverty and marginalisation. Because if you look at who ends up in the, ju in the judiciary, in the court system, on probation and in the prison uh, population, it is working class communities. So the law, yes, is obviously a law that's supposed to uh, apply to everybody, but justice, unfortunately, isn't actually equal in its implementation. And it doesn't actually serve anybody. It doesn't help anybody in terms of uh, their drug use. Uh, Trina, you work at community level with working class communities uh, and many who would have been seen firsthand the catastrophic and devastating impact of drugs on communities. Do you believe decriminalising uh, drugs could change that? Yeah, because then we can change to a health-led model. So we can look at looking at the addiction, we can look at wrapping services around people. Um, when we decrim, we've seen the evidence shows us that drug use doesn't go up or down. In fact, there's very little change. But what there is, is there a change for the health outcomes for the people who are recreational using and some who fall into addiction. And just to um, Lynn's point there, the, the difference of somebody from a working class community and, and somebody else that has more social capital and resources in how they're dealt with through the criminal justice system is stark because they have access to solicitors, barristers, all that kind of thing for their young people and they can keep them out of criminal justice. But for a young person who comes from some of the areas where I work, um, they may be in a situation where they don't even know that they can fight a case, for example. They don't even know and understand how the courts work. So they immediately will take a criminal charge. Um, and, and that then changes the whole um, trajectory of that person's life because now they have a, a criminal sentence or a criminal um, record. And that then limits their ability to travel, for example, or to work in certain jobs. So I'm, Have you seen that? Have you, oh have you yeah, absolutely. I've seen, I've seen young people seen and through the foolishness of adolescents have fallen into, you know, some sort of um, maybe carrying drugs or maybe they may have been in debt bondage to a dealer and felt they had no option. And it's kind of like a modern day slavery almost because they can't go to their parents because their parents may be dealing with their own issues. So they need to try and sort it out themselves. And that then can have like really bad effects for them. Even before they're 18, they can feel washed up. Um, John Lee, to come to you on this, if you are currently possessing cannabis, you could be arrested, charged, 
prosecuted, potentially imprisoned. But if you're possessing alcohol, arguably one of the most harmful drugs in this country, and we've seen the effects of it, uh, practically every, every, uh, every family in this country in some shape or form will have seen the impact of, of alcohol. There, there's nothing, there's no punishment. There's nothing in the way of legislation around that. Well, so are we hypocrites when it, when it comes to our drug policy, when you include alcohol in that? Well, firstly, um, I, and I, I deal with the Gardaí a lot and sto stories I've done on, on drug abuse and drug crime. If someone is apprehended, in Dublin, I'm not sure how it works down the country, with a small amount of cannabis, they, they are not prosecuted. That, that, that does not happen. There's instruction from superintendent level across Dublin for, that, for them not to be pursued. But I also think, and I, we, we came here to discuss a podcast that Paul and um, Lynn had participated in, which is looking forward to the, um, the Citizens' Assembly on Drugs. I think it's very dangerous to equate uh, alcohol use and drug use. There is no, and if you listen to the, the discussion uh, our two colleagues here had on that, there is a, there is a subliminal message that somehow it, 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 is, it, it is a safe thing to do, to take cocaine, to take crack cocaine, heroin, in a way that it's safe to take alcohol. Maybe if we went back 100 years, we wouldn't legalise alcohol, but it is legal and it is a safe drug. Is it a safe drug? I've covered... Arguably, it causes I've, most harm in this society. Claire, I've, I've covered for 25... Can I just finish? I've covered uh, um, drug abuse stories for 25 years. I've been on the scene where someone has died from taking one ecstasy tablet. I covered the Katie French story to, to, and, you know, I've covered stories of young working men where she consumed cocaine and died, a young 21-year-old woman. That doesn't happen with alcohol. So it's a dangerous Hold thing on, to equate well, the two. You would, you would see longer-term effects of that. You, so you, you talk about heart failure. You talk about cancer. You talk about cirrhosis of the mm. liver. You talk about other elements that may come about because of extreme alcohol use, there domestic violence. No. And there violence is on our street. It is, it is a dangerous thing to, to equate alcohol use with drug use. And, I, I, and you know... The, the, the cocaine is a class A drug for a reason because it's dangerous. Heroin is a drug that's a derivative of mor morphine, right. which, I, I, which is administered to sick people. Heather, to bring I, you on this, where do you stand yeah, around uh, the, the issue of decriminalisation? I would be very cautious about decriminalisation. I, I would agree with Lynn um, in relation to the working class areas. One of, one of my, my first political activities was a canvassing in a working class area in Dublin many years ago. And I came across a young 17-year-old uh, who had had just taken heroin, who was foaming at the mouth and was, was semi-conscious. And uh, a young boy, about eight years old, stepped over him like it was the most normal thing in the world. And it did seem very clear to me at that stage that unless the state intervenes in this situation, that eight-year-old boy is going to be lying in the 17-year-old uh, place in a very, very short period of time. But like, the, re the way we try to, to solve that is to intervene by investment into working-class areas, is by trying to to fix the, the problems by creating services and supports for families in those areas. That's the way, because many people are taking the heroin, for example, in working class areas, because the pain and the suffering and the, the damage is being done to them uh, in those uh, societies. So is it right so, to potentially make those people criminals? No, but, but, but the, the issue I'd have, you mentioned alcohol, and, and, and alcohol is not a very dangerous drug, but it's more damaging than any other drug in this state at the moment. Because it's actually legal. Because 54% uh, of the population have used uh, alcohol regularly over uh, the, the last year. The more use of a drug 
the more damage it does. It's as simple as that. Now, I, I, I so 7% seven, seven, seven of people at the moment use cannabis. Um, so it has far less uh, societal impact because it's far lower. Now, my worry is if you legalise it, you're going to see... I'm not North- talking now, because that's a separate uh, thing. Sure. Okay? So you, there's decriminalisation, that's right. for, for personal use and personal possession, that you won't go through the court system, no, you, that you won't get a criminal record. Sure. Which is a separate argument to, to no, legalisation. Apologies, no, you, you are right in, in that. But the, the point I'm trying to say is, even in, in decriminalisation of it, uh, my worry is that it will become more normal within society, use will rise... And more people will end up with psychosis. More people will end up in, in hospitals. More people will end up with, with the health illnesses that uh, uh, it creates. OK, it'll be normalised in society with decriminalisation, okay. Paul. 2023 is going to be a big year for the discussion of drugs uh, and of Ireland's attitude to it, mostly because of the campaign work of people like Lynn and Trina and, and many, many others. And I don't think we should start that year and that conversation by being in the trenches, OK? So I think the first thing we need to do is to start just to listen to each other. OK. Uh, the, the, the... Just, Paul, we're going to stop you there for a second just because we, we have a technical issue with your mic, which we're oh, going to get fixed. But um, let's just just take a little um, viewpoint um, from the, the area around treatment of uh, treatment services and what's on offer at the moment, and what people working at the heart of that believe. Um, on this, a little earlier, I spoke to uh, two people in the medical field: head of addiction services at St John of God's Hospital, Professor Colin O'Gara, and assistant professor at DCU's School of Nursing, Dr Denise Proudfoot. And it began by asking Dr Proudfoot how the area of access to services and diagnosis would change if we took a health-based approach to the treatment of drug users? Uh, Claire, I mean, I think firstly, I mean, I think what we have to think about is think of the Irish drug strategy and its emphasis is really about supporting recovery and reducing harm. So I think if we take a more uh, health-focused approach, I think it would be better quality of life. It gives access to treatment for people with addictions, for people with dual diagnosis, um, and supports their families and communities that they live in. So broadly, it takes more individualist and I think a more uh, sort of sympathetic and more constructive approach uh, for people who need care and treatment. Uh, Key to that, though, do you believe, um, Denise, that that services are at, at the core of all of this as well? Yes. I mean, I think it's access to timely services, appropriate services. Um, So there's a concept, um, particularly when we talk about dual diagnosis. So dual diagnosis is where somebody has possibly a mental health issue um, and complicated by drug or alcohol abuse. Um, And they have up to date really in Ireland, they've had difficulty in accessing appropriate services. Um, So we, at the moment, the HSE are piloting a national clinical program um, around dual diagnosis um, so that people can access it in in an appropriate fashion and they can access good care. Um, so that encourages people then to go onto the road of recovery, which is um, which is a, certainly a more healthier option for these people who are using drugs or alcohol. Uh, Professor Colin O'Gara, if I could bring you in here, do you believe that decriminalisation would support your work in helping people with addiction? I do, absolutely, Claire, because... Um you know, I think people who suffer from addiction uh, are highly traumatized and and also the families and loved ones around people who suffer from addiction are highly traumatized. And what we see is that uh, after all of this trauma and sometimes shame and guilt, 
Uh, the last thing that uh, individuals or families want is to be criminalised as well. So um, it's an added um, really trauma, I suppose, for a lot of my patients that they could do without. And I think we need to, as Dr. Proudfoot just alluded to there, I would totally agree, we need to focus on a kind and compassionate approach to people who suffer what, what is essentially a medical illness. You know, addiction is a biologically driven brain disorder, just like a physical illness. Now, I, you know, that the, the medical um, evidence for that is compelling. It's accepted by international classificatory systems. But as a society, we don't quite grasp that yet. And I think we need to grasp that. We need to start treating people who suffer from addiction as we would any other medical uh, condition. And I think decriminalization is a first step towards that. Would you have concerns with, that without better resources and better support for services like the ones that you offer, that decriminalisation in itself won't lead to a reduction in harm? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, um, drug policy is one aspect, but service provision is a completely other. And, you know, they, they are, they're often put hand in hand. But, you know, service provision... Um, again, as, as Dr. Proudfoot alludes to, you know, dual diagnosis, most of addiction is, is uh, characterized by comorbid uh, mental health difficulties. About 50 to 80 percent of, of addiction, you will have mental health difficulties. And the service provision for that at present is, 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 is not there. So, you know, definitely if we're going to uh, change drug policy, we have to follow it up with appropriate service provision. Absolutely. And to you, Denise, on that and looking at service provision and all of that, but hand in hand with that, and aside from decriminalisation, many people would say, well, the next step then is regulation or, or legalisation of drugs. Where, where would you stand on that? Um, I mean, I, I would prefer to focus on effective treatment rather than comment on necessarily the sort of longer term. So I think my area of expertise is more in relation to, to the treatment and the access of treatment um, for people. And also think about the complexity um, of drug use and how it impacts on families, communities, uh, relationships, people's access to work, study, etc. So that would be more my sort of um, area of interest and sort of to, to kind of promote and I think effective services that are timely, I think it's really important and locally available to people so they, they don't have to travel or they don't go to the wrong place. So going to A&E from one A&E to the next, from maybe one uh, mental health service to an addiction service. Um, so that health professionals and social care professionals can be responsive as well. I think that's really important to people's needs um, and also acknowledging the journeys that people are on and, and seeking help is quite difficult. It can take people quite a while to actually access help as well but when they do that they get effective help and timely. Okay I'd like to thank you both Head of Addiction Services at St John of God's Hospital Professor Colin O'Gara and DCU's School of Nursing uh, Professor Dr Denise Proudfoot you're very welcome and um, thank you for joining us and giving us your views on the programme tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Now I'd like to go back uh, to, to Paul McAuliffe on all of this. Um, as John mentioned earlier, it is going before a citizens' assembly. 
um, you're obviously trying to get that conversation started. People yeah, would like, say it's a long overdue conversation it is. from and, a political point of view. You've seen just in the last few minutes, we've been able to jam pack it with lots of different concepts and so on. As I said, 2023 is a big year for this discussion because of the Citizens' Assembly, and that's because of people like Lynn and many others who have campaigned for this. But there's going to be 100 people who are coming to this issue, perhaps not with the experience that many of the communities that I represent and that others are from have had. And many of those communities initially had a justice-led approach. They did drugs marches. They, they blamed drug dealers. They wanted more guards. But we have to listen to those communities too because over those decades, they have come to a view, many of them, uh, that decriminalisation is, is the way forward. Because, as Philly McMahon said in, in, in the podcast that we launched this week, if your son or daughter uh, had become addicted to a drug, how would you like uh, for, for them to be treated? Do, would a justice-led approach be the way you'd like to go? Or would you like them to receive the medical okay, attention? OK, well, that's one. And, and I think, Claire, if, if people engage on that human level, uh, and it mightn't be your son or daughter today... Uh, but it may be in the future. Yes. And I think having that compassionate approach, th th there's really strong concepts here that we're trying to explain to people. The idea of trauma, the idea of early childhood experiences, the, how mental health impacts. These are all tech really technical uh, medical issues. The idea of Ill addiction as an illness rather than a, a choice. And the idea, I suppose, that, that you would support that if it's seen as an illness, then you shouldn't be criminalising that illness. But, but what I'm also saying, Claire, is that let's not start this year or this argument in the trenches. Let's give people the space to say, OK, well, we're afraid of the floodgates OK, you open. want to hear about sides. And, 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 let's just... I think it's important that people are allowed to ask those questions. We've seen that That's in other okay. social changes, that having the discussion right. is part of the change. OK, uh, Pather, let's ask the question then. If your son or daughter was caught with drugs, do you want them criminalised for the rest of their lives? Well, first of all, I think everybody here wants the best for a person who's addicted to drugs. But just on that matter, because sometimes I, I think we see actually, it as happening I, in communities that we just don't need to worry about. I think about. it'd be easier for me to persuade my kids not to take drugs if it was a criminal, if, if okay. it was a criminal act, first and foremost. But on, on the rehabilitation issue, and that is actually the most important issue, I, if a teenager in my county is looking for residential drug rehabilitation services, there's none. If a teenager in my county is looking for dual diagnosis service, there's none. And actually, you know, for children who are actually suffering to, uh, on addiction to drugs, there is precious little Pater, services Pater, in this country. Accept, do you accept and that over the term of criminalisation, more people are taking see, drugs? So, uh, so, so uh, more people have taken drugs in, uh, in, while in a, it has been For example, in, in Colorado, right, when they legalised uh, marijuana, you had an increase uh, of children over 12, uh, of 54%, who uh, started taking and Pater, uh, marijuana. Again, you're talking about legalisation. And right. while that no. is a conversation, it's the issue of decriminalisation that we're, we're so talking it's, about. It's, it's, it is, is decriminalisation yeah. in Colorado, it's in fairness. It's legalisation. So I visited many different regions to have decrim from Portland to Portugal. I am... I've met with the people who are implementing it in those places. And I suppose we can focus the conversation on the fact that um, whether people are in addiction, people are living on the streets, people are in working class communities, they're criminalised. But you can be guaranteed that there's people that work in this building, work in Leinster House, work in, doc in hospitals, that are all using drugs. And nobody will admit it. They won't stand yeah. up and add their middle class professional voice to the fact that they use drugs. So we have to constantly come out and talk about those who are least fortunate, who are going to be arrested, who do need treatment beds, who do need therapy for trauma, who do need all those wraparound supports. But the reality is, whether it's criminalised or not criminalised, drug use is already normal. We're not, we're not, we've nothing to fear. It's here. It's happening. It's happening every day. It's happening in every community, every household. And, about the and we need to come to terms with that. What about then, uh, Trina, the criminal justice system as a deterrent, which is what Pather appears to be saying, that 
you know, if, if you say there is, look, the long arm of the law, then that will frighten off kids from taking drugs in the first place. Well, well of, of, course, of course it doesn't work. Actually, preventative um, measures is what we need in schools to talk to young people about how to keep themselves safe in a community that may be unsafe for them. But we can't... Like, we can't take the moral high ground on this and talk about people that take drugs as opposed to people that drink, for example. I, I had a conversation last week with um, some people in their late 20s about drug and, and drink. And they said they think we're crazy the way we drink, that they don't drink very much at all. But they might. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. We have a smoke now and again, and they actually think of the harm that alcohol is doing to us. And they said, in years to come, you're going to look back and think you were the crazy ones to drink the way you drink. So it's all about the social change and what's the norms there. Mm. Well, let's we, we have also, a look. Yeah, we I also just... remember, Claire, there's an illegal drugs industry here that are preying on people with an addiction. Um, Dr. Jack Dole, uh, uh, Jack Dolan, the former Assistant Guard Commissioner, speaks in the podcast um, about almost a multinational industry here. And we, we, have, to, we have to understand that, that the people who have, a, have an addiction are prey to that industry. So you're saying in order to tackle Methadone, that, we methadone need, we, we is need, a legal drug. We argue we need, we, yeah, we need methadone, the, methadone we need is illegal, a legal drug. We need the legal element of all of this. Then if it's decriminalised. It's not. It's a different conversation again. But it's yeah. the same conversation. Very... The drugs. I heard your podcast, and Peter McVerry discussed it as well. But 
there is, there, there's no answer. You're not providing answers on an awful lot of things. What does decriminalisation mean? Mm. You, so have, you haven't provided... Comp- uh, so, 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 people would still... Can per- I explain what decriminalisation is? I would like to hear... So decriminalisation is the individual. It's not the drug. The drug remains illegal. And the supply still happens in an illegal fashion. You don't quantify You don't affect supply. I listened to your interview today. You don't quantify the amount of drugs. You don't describe what decriminalisation means. You don't say where drugs would come from. Um, you know, you're it's a legislator. You're going to have to present these laws in some fashion, some co- cogent matter. And, what, and everything you've said doesn't sound cogent If you went back to, to 2017, I've already tabled this legislation and I put it down to the Department of Health to set the quantities. I can't set the quantities. I can only do much as an independent senator, right? But you do set quantities. You set either an amount in weight or you set it in days, but that's relative. The drugs are still in the illegal market, also, but it's easy for us to conflate the two things. And you also People feel should not end up in prison because of poverty, marginalisation. And, and the middle class and professional class are also yeah. uh, keeping the supply going in the illegal trade. Everybody is part of this. But Everybody. Just, you have to live in the real world, though, as but well. But that's the thing you know, I am. But, but where would uh, drugs John, come from? Can I ask they you come from gangs John. who murder people, who, who... They come from who, the middle class people who buy the cocaine off them. But where did the drugs John, come from? Back, come back to the person so who's addicted. John, come back drugs? to the person who's addicted. Just, just come back to the person who's addicted. If, if a relative of yours, if somebody you know is addicted, do you want a guard to call to their door? Or do you want a mental health nurse or an addiction counsellor? But or, you or, want or, or, or two doctor. separate things. There's no services there. The Gardaí no, do not prosecute people for possession of small, small amounts of drug. They, do. they don't. They, they don't. Do, and I, 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 I do with them all approach, the time. John. I've written stories approach. that have to be all right. overseen I, by I, an editor. Can I cut across? They don't. I think it's important because we wanted to get and the thoughts of our viewers tonight and the results of our interactive poll are in should the possession of drugs for personal use be decriminalised. The result of that poll was 68% said yes. 32% um, said no. Um, Paul, what would you take from that? Obviously, that's just a snapshot, a snapshot but we did get a big response to this. Um, at least people feel at least that the, the conversation needs to be had around it. I think the, I think the public are ahead of politicians on, on this. Um, and I, I think what we'll find is, is that the Citizens' Assembly, when they hear evidence from medical experts and so on, that they're going to have a very compassionate approach to it. I think John is right in one thing. This will come down to uh, wording and legislation. And that is going to be very tactical. I think the way forward is we have a Citizens' Assembly that makes recommendations. Yeah, what's Micheál Martin feel about it? Well, I, I, I think Micheál, before, earlier before Christmas, said that he wanted a health-led approach. But he didn't mm. want to glamorise the use of of cannabis. Well, I think it goes it goes back to the point idea. All drugs are bad. All drugs have a negative impact, which includes alcohol, which includes methadone, which includes illegal drugs. And those people who have a propensity to addiction suffer that addiction. And often they have poly drug use, including including alcohol. So, so my, my point. So that, what's what's his take on it? What's his view? Well, what's well, the well, Pina view on it? What's the government I, I, take on it? They've done nothing about this. That's and not true. Not true. Well, it's been it's talked about for a long very, time. It, yeah, I mean, so, we've heard calls from the opposition for the Citizens' Assembly to happen, for yeah, this it, conversation to be had. Fianna Fáil's view on this is whatever you want it to be. No, I've got to tell you what Fianna Fáil's position on this is better. So Fianna Fáil's position is what's in the programme for government, but ourselves and the Greens and Fianna Gael have agreed to the Citizens' Assembly on Drugs. The Citizens' Assembly is going to bring the recommendations back. And, you know, you only have to look at the all-party committee chaired by James Laws before Christmas. Um, it, it, there is a very strong argument within the Oireachtas across parties here uh, to start to look at a health-led approach. And that, now, what that, that means and the details of it, John is right. We do have to get down into the, into the detail of that. But we have to start by, by saying what we have isn't working. 
drugs are flooding our society mm. and people right. who have, have an addiction are suffering as a result. Trina, we did have Junior Minister on Health Frank uh, Fian just a year ago saying there's no desire in government to decriminalise drugs yeah. in Ireland. Yeah. Um, do you believe that's nearer the truth despite this conversation that Paul said is happening at government level? Well, well, I think people are listening more to conversations and I think that's important. I, I, I can't say what, what the government is going to do, but I think the fact that we're going to have a citizens' assembly, I think, is very important so that we can hear views. Um, I think a lot of people walking in the arena that I walk in were very disappointed with them comments because it shut down dialogue. And actually, whenever we need to do anything, we need to listen from all sides and all perspectives. And I think that's going to be the key to the citizens' assembly. And that, that's really what we should be doing, is listening. All right. OK, well, there we will leave that conversation for now. I'm sure we will hear a lot more about it in the future. Um, but my thanks to Trina, who joined us um, with her views tonight and her insight. If you've been affected by the issues covered tonight, you can see our list of helplines at virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines. And the rest of our panel will be staying on with us because coming up after the break, tomorrow marks the first day of the new Dáil term. And uh, is it the revamp we needed or more of the same? Do stay with us. Welcome back at tonight's Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting. Rounds of applause rang out as Taoiseach Leo Varadkar pledged his full support for Minister Pascal Donoghue as he faces controversy over election expenses. It's a rocky start to the new Dáil term. Will the whole coalition rally around their man or will another minister face the chopping block? Well, my panel of Paul McAuliffe, Lynn Ruan, Pather Tobin and John Lee are still with me. Um, to come to you first, John, on this, um, Pascal Donoghue is under intensified opposition pressure despite clearly that support he's getting from his parliamentary party and uh, from the Taoiseach. Where is all of this going? Um, as of tonight, one would think he is he, he's safe enough. Um, it, it was a strange one, and I think if if I beg to differ with how he handled it, uh, I think if he'd given the human explanation, a lot of uh, politicians would have would have understood that it was seven years ago nearly. Some guys were putting up posters, and he wasn't fully across the detail of it. And, and how would it happen? Sure, he would have been across the detail of it seven years ago, surely, during an election. I think, I think if I had heard a story as someone who's familiar with, with campaigning, um, there are, there, there's a whole lot going on. There's people helping out. Sometimes they're volunteers. Sometimes they're, they're, they're party members. They assist in putting up posters. Other people come along and they're paid. Um, in this instance, it appears belatedly we find out that these gentlemen um, should have been paid. That, that's his explanation. They were paid. Um, and they were on, paid, though. No, no that they, they, but that, that should then have been declared as part of the election returns. The, within government, they feel it's a small infraction. They're standing by him, as we saw with Leo Varadkar. Whether the opposition then decide um, when he appears in the Dáil, he will be asked to uh, answer questions on this and be open to questioning. Whether they decide to push this to its limit and feel that his explanation was not, was not adequate. And, and I do also think... It's, it looks a bit odd that the minister responsible for ethics has now recused himself from all ethics legislation. And again, I would, I would feel that maybe if he'd stuck to a human explanation of, of how it was a rather incoherent return and these things can happen, 
But he has brought it to a Isn't level the where he has given... though, that he was asked about it back last November and didn't, on, on this subject. And at that point, there was no clarity. And at that point... There was the, nothing changed. And now we have... Well, you, you know, we as a journalist, a lot of that goes on. And that mm. then... Is uh, it good enough, though? Sometimes I mean, raises uh, the ire of the journalist when it, when it does break cover. Yeah. But he's, he's given well, a detailed it, explanation well, that now is to stand that. over I mean, Pather, uh, what's your take on it? I mean, at this point, do you believe there are more elements to the story that, that, that you'd like to see answers to? Um, or, or, or what you make yeah, of it now, so, because I know there are calls for a dull statement, and there's calls for more clarity around this. I, I think there's two there's two issues to this. First of all, I think that um, Pascal Donoghue will be seen as too important in government to be allowed go, because I think if Pascal Donoghue goes over this, they're all in danger of potentially going in the future. And I think they'll, you know, Varadkar, every single uh, senior politician in government will be very cautious about uh, giving the line on this, because someday they might be visited with the same situation. My major concern at this, and the reason why we have this legislation in the first place, is because we need transparency in politics. So, for example, if a politician receives money, we need to know where that money so, came from to see the influence that a certain business person or a developer mm. or whoever has. Now, in, in Pascal's case, the individual who gave him the money got nominated then by the government shortly afterwards uh, onto the Land Development Agency board. Uh, and that's a significant issue. And also was named by Pascal Dunhu then as a possible head of North uh, East Inner City uh, Group. Now, uh, in, in he fairness... He denies in, any involvement in, in um, the awarding of, of, of that the first one, but role. not the second. He admits, he admits the naming in the second. Now, naming I'm not saying in the Mrs. second, but not in the final I'm not saying Mr Stone is, re- is receiving any money mm. in relation to the work he, do- he does. But there is, has been, uh, in relation to Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, historically, a circle of people who, through money, gained influence. And that needs to be declared and be yeah. public. Uh, you know, Paul, we await the Standards and Public Office um, Commission inquiry on this. I'm sure that's what you're going to tell me tonight. But where do Fianna Fáil stand on all of it? Because, um, you know, it is, it is very problematic at the start of this new Dáil term to have this. We've had Damien English, of course, we haven't mentioned here tonight, but Damien English um, and him stepping aside from his role as junior minister and now Pascal Dunahoo, the minister for ethics, as it were, in hot water. Yeah, look, I think the important thing for people watching in tonight is, is that there is regulation of donations. There's regulation of company versus individual donations to political party and uh, to, to individuals. But there's, that wasn't d- followed. There's, there's returns that we have to make uh, as politicians. And then there's a process where complaints are made. And a complaint has been made. And the Standard and Public Office is investigating that. So I think that is the appropriate form. It's, you know, the, the, it's not as if there's no framework here or that there's no uh, method of recourse uh, where a complaint is made. There is. The Standard and Public Office is yeah, the Yeah, no, it is, is the there. And everyone and, acknowledges and, that SIPO does and, exist. And but on sign- the very matter of a politician not declaring services and not yeah. and still awaiting maybe to get you know fully costed and the full valuation we would hear from the opposition is that the full um value of those services that were afforded to him is it a problem is it a problem for people watching tonight looking to trust our politicians and seeing this all play out yeah well, i think the minister was very clear in saying that his return was wrong and it was mm. wrong that they were not included. So I think he has been he has been very strong in that. But what I want to see is, and, and he, he has said he will make a dull statement, and he should make a dull statement if okay. that's what it calls for. But I would much rather uh, all of the details, details be made available to SIPO also, and that we get the sanction. We have a system. Uh, the system uh, can uh, work, and there are sanctions. For, in and the, the sanction. In the, in what the, are the in sanctions? The, 
Well, if, if donations are inappropriate, they should they should be returned, uh, and that, that that may be one option which right, okay. which, which, which SIPO, SIPO returns. But the, the important thing here is, is that it, we know all the information and that there is a process. And I think the minister has given details, and I'm, I imagine all those details need to be okay. provided to SIPO as well as part of the complaint. Lynn Pascal Donoghue has certainly banked on that image of being a steady a steady minister and representing Ireland to um, on a European stage, and he's also, as I said, the minister for ethics. Um, essentially, in his role as public expenditure. Um, do you believe he should be held to an even higher standard in that regard? Yeah, I think I think everyone should, regardless of... Um, so your peers, your colleagues, you know, the, the leader of your party might um, believe and believe that it was an error, it was a human error, right? But I don't think that that matters. There has to be seen to be consequence to things that are not very clear because none of us will ever know the truth. It's only ever Pascal that will actually know the mm -hmm. truth of that. So if you're coming from an ethics point of view, everybody else around them should make sure that there's consequence when those standards, are, standards and ethics are broken. What sort of consequence when, would, would well, you, I think would you, you be talking about? Well, I think you need to look at positions. I think you need to look at financial penalty, not just the return of the thing that you didn't declare. Because I think if you look at, say, communities that if they miss a letter to their house on their council application, if you fill out a social welfare form wrong and it's you actually earn €20 Euro more than you actually say on it, you're heavily penalised, mm. you're heavily targeted. You can lose your position on a housing list, you can lose your position on a hospital waiting list if you don't send the form back properly. But yet there's no consequence for the most powerful mm. when they don't actually adhere to ethics. So in Ireland right now, we've huge amount of communities becoming extremely disillusioned with government and with politics. And if you want to be able to ensure that people trust the democracy in which they're living in, regardless of whether okay. you believe Pascal or not, you need to be shown to take a stance on it. Okay. Uh, more than sorry, because we have heard a fair few sorries, haven't we, um, in recent days um, over a couple of different affairs involving uh, both Pascal Dunhoo and Damien English. And briefly, uh, John, to talk about the health crisis that we are seeing, that's also going to be front and centre, isn't it, on the political agenda. Um, we heard today that in the past two weeks, the ambulance service has received more than 2,000 calls a day. Um, and many would think, could you have faith in the promises that are going to be made this dull term about, about health? No, Stephen Donnelly um, probably weathered a lot of the usual slings and arrows that are thrown up uh, the Minister for Health because of the pandemic. And it is now hitting not only the system, but probably his political future. Uh, he was kept in the Department of Health. So probably to be cynical, what politicians try and do now is get through January and get through February, ho hope that the, the situation eases off and they go on for another year. But the endemic problems in the, in, the, in the health service remain after the pandemic. OK, so who might like to be gone by next winter, Paul? No, well, look, we've, we're, here for, we're here for the full five years. The job is just to try and fix, fix the health service. And that, and there's, there's 14 protests on Saturday coming outside of A&Es right across the country on the health crisis. Mm -hmm. There's 14 uh, hospital campaigns that have gathered together in anger over what's happening, right. uh, and I really urge people to go along to those protests uh, I, I, uh, to I see can we get I the government to stop closing A&Es? Because right, a, time, right now we have a right. crisis in A&E capacity, I think and the government are still closing A&Es. There's a real frustration, Claire, with the level of funding. Like just since 2019, there's an additional €4 billion Euro has gone into health. But it's to the front uh, lines, uh, not the management in the HSE. Uh, uh, and and the, que the questions are, is why is the service not improving? And there needs to be systemic change. Sure. I think Stephen Donnelly has, uh, okay. is the man who wants to try and do that. Okay, well, I suppose it's about getting the results. Well, you are in government. Um, and that's, that's the reason we're right. there. OK, we'll leave it there. Um, my thanks to Pather. The rest of us will be staying on after the break. Will the reopening of the iconic Cleary's building be the revamp that O'Connell Street needs? 
Stay with us. Welcome back. Once again, the people of Dublin and beyond will be able to meet under Cleary's clock and the department store is set to reopen in the second quarter of this year. Will the redevelopment of this iconic building be the first step in regenerating O'Connell Street? Paul McAuliffe, Lynn Ruan and John Lee are still here with me. Paul, to come to you first as a former Lord Mayor, uh, do you think there's significance? We had the unveiling of, of the clock today, the building itself and what they're going to call a Cleary's quarter isn't going to open up for another while yet. Is there, is there a big significance in it or is it just a lot of well, look, PR and spin? I think I think there's definitely a PR and advertising campaign for the new uh, commercial venture and fair play to uh, It's important that we have uh, economic activity. I think there's a sour taste left from what happened um, uh, in, in Cleary's and the workers. And I know uh, former Lord Mayor Brendan Carr uh, and Sipti were very good at organising a, a deal uh, afterwards with the workers that gave some satisfaction for the hurt uh, that they went through uh, that allowed this uh, development to go ahead uh, previously under an atrium and now under the new owners. Like, our, our, this is a very significant piece of real estate for 150 years on, mm. on, on our main thoroughfare. Uh, so I want it to be successful. I want people to be able to enjoy it in the way we hear about the Cleary's clock and, uh, and, and all of that. Um, but but, but I, I think we've, we've, there's another issue here around how companies, particularly retail companies, separate their assets and their, their trading. And we have, we, we, have to, we have yet to finish the work on that. And I know Minister Neil Richmond will be, is continuing mm. the work on that. But, so we, before we celebrate reopening Cleary's, Let's close off the legacy of what happened with Cleary's as well. Yeah, because we do have to remember that 460 people lost their jobs with the change of ownership and the sudden closure of Cleary's in 2015. Um, and and what, what can be learned from that and, and you know, how jobs, I suppose, can be <clears throat> safeguarded in this new um, development. But Lynn, to come to, I suppose, what's happening O'Connell Street and whether all of this will fit into regeneration. On the other side of the street, we have... Um, developers submitting further plans for regeneration, but they are being opposed. They are being opposed because of what's happening in particular on, on Moore Street there, how it's going to affect traders on the street mm. and by local historians and as well at a political level. Mm. Where do you stand on it as a dub? Um, like, I think, you know, when we speak of the Cleary's walkers, then we have to look at the walkers that are still currently on O'Connell Street outside of Cleary's and not repeat the same mistakes in them. You look at Moore Street, I mean, my dad worked in a clothing factory in Moore Street. We were in and out of there every day as kids. I mean, and the heritage um, that's associated with that is obviously hugely important to people. But if the regeneration is going to happen, I think we need to understand that heritage is not only about the buildings and the architecture, but it's about the people, it's about the culture, it's about the history, it's about the social context in which locals have lived in the inner city for many, many decades. And I think when we regenerate, we have to be cognizant of that. We have to make sure that if people can't trade while there's regeneration happening, that they are compensated. We have to make sure that if office spaces are built, and there's already a tour of free office spaces since mm. uh, COVID, but yet in the plans that I've, I've read, some of the plans in relation to office spaces, hotels, um, uh, social housing. So even when we look at that social housing, will people from the inner city 
be able to live in those social houses or will they be priced out of that market? So when we think of heritage and we think of regeneration of O'Connell Street, we have to keep the heart of the inner city and the people of the inner city because they are part of that fabric. You yeah. know, so I understand. And that includes new communities yeah. in the inner city as well. Yeah. Lots of new communities yeah. have come, come to live in Dublin City as well. Um, you know, because O'Connell Street has got um, a really bad rap now and it's, it's, it's very unfortunate because it's our main thoroughfare. It's a, it's a beautiful street, in fact, um, John. Michal Martin saying this will enhance the status of O'Connell Street. Does it need to go deeper than that in achieving the regeneration that I think that Lynn is talking about while protecting the history that's there? Well, O'Connell Street should be a symbol and a shining symbol of what our nation stands for. But unfortunately, it, it symbolises a, a large number of our society have been left, who have been left behind are left with addiction problems, with homelessness and everything to wander our main street. And that's, and that's, what, it, that's what it means to me. I'm, I'm, I'm from the north side, but I'm reluctant to go up O'Connell Street a lot of the time. I used to work in, in Abbey Street for the Irish Independent. And I remember being sent out in a story to do with the issue we were discussing earlier on, to see how much drugs I could buy on, we did do this in conjunction with the Gardaí, by the way, uh, on, on O'Connell Street. Thanks for clarifying so, that. That's 24, that's, so we were setting people up, is that so what that's, No, we, they, we, we didn't um, reveal who we bought them off, but that'll sh- show you that 25 years ago, uh, O'Connell Street was a place where you purchased drugs, <clears throat> and it hasn't changed very much since. So, Are yes, we at risk of burying that, like by saying, you know, here's glossy, shiny new buildings? No. Um, well, look, I, I think there's a lot of talk and about there. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about dereliction. Yeah, no, I, I think there's a lot of talk about dereliction in our city. Here's an empty building that has been empty for, you know, uh, four, five, six, six years. So it's good that this building is being put back to use. It's good that Dubliners are going to be back in here, that there's going to be people employed. It's good that there's going to be investment in O'Connell Street. I think what John and Lynn are saying is, is that that regeneration has to have an impact in the local community. Mm. I think that's done with very, very good community And will that happen? Because but, why are we having the objections? Because there's been plenty of objections to these um, to these plans. You know, we've got Mary Lou MacDonald as well. She's she's objected to it. Local historians opposing the move. Again, it, it's probably about, you know, the heritage of, of, of Moore Street. And well, specifically on Moore Street, that specifically on Moore Street um, the, the headquarters of the, of the final uh, place of the 1916 Rising is on Moore Street. There's been actually a lot of work done. And, and because of the campaign and group, a significant amount of Moore Street has been protected and the courtage. Now, we have to also respect mm. the laneways. That has to be reflected in the final design as well. But look, it has to be much deeper and it has to deliver for the communities that, that are there around it as okay, well. Okay, well, not a block laid yet. That is it from us. Uh, my thanks to Paul, to Lynn, to John, to all the guests who've joined us tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok uh, tonight via MTV. But from everyone here, good night and take care. <laughs>